if we were to summarize some of the false doctrines that are persistent throughout Christianity, persistently so much and so dangerous that they lead to believing in a false gospel, a false Jesus, a false Holy Spirit, a false understanding of God, a false understanding of men, of oneself, and what it entails, what the Bible actually expects of us to be saved from our sins. If we were to summarize them to give the gist, we may say that there is a false comprehension, a false estimation of the love of God. A worldly and carnal definition of the love of God causes people to believe in a false God, to believe in an idol, which is dangerous. The second aspect or the second doctrine is the doctrine of free will. Those who believe in free will also are falsely understanding human nature and even God's expectation of men and how to be saved in Jesus Christ. If we believe in free will, we are also worshiping a false god. We are also believing in a doctrine that leads to hell. It's a non-negotiable. The love of God must be correctly understood and even the will of man must be correctly understood. Otherwise, false notions lead to hell. Further, the third is to misunderstand fruit. Fruit. If the life, if the Christian life bears no fruit, bears no good fruit, then there is no Christianity in the man. If there is fruit, according to the Bible, the biblical definition of fruit, then there is a true conversion. There should be a difference or a change from the way the man used to live to the way he lives now. There should be a difference. There should be a change. The God who gives us a new heart gives us a heart that produces good fruit, fruit that leads to eternal life. That must be present. But it is also a doctrine that is despised by common nominal Christianity. In nominal so-called Christianity, people despise this doctrine. They call it by many names in order to undermine it, in order to disdain it, and in order to malign it to the extent that we are indeed preaching a false gospel when they are actually doing so. So there must be fruit. Let's now go in turn, point by point. We said first, a misunderstanding, a false comprehension of the love of God. How so? Usually when people have a distorted, perverted, crooked understanding of the love of God, it has four subcategories. And what are they? Under the love of God, they firstly think that the love of God is universal. 
universal love of God. God loves every man in every place throughout history. The universal love of God. But does the Bible teach that God loves every individual throughout history? Does it actually teach that? Or rather, does it teach that God's, God hates men also? Psalm 5. Psalm 5, 4 to 7. Against the universal love of God. A few verses on that subject. Psalm 5, 4 to 7. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all who do iniquity. You destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the man of bloodshed and deceit. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house at your holy temple I will bow in reverence for you. Does it not say in verse 5, you hate all who do iniquity? And in verse 6, he destroys those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors, another way of saying hate, the man of bloodshed and deceit. God hates and abhors people who walk in sin. God is a God of hate. Also, He does not have this universal love, not according to Psalm 5, nor according to Psalm 11. Psalm 11, 4 to 7. Psalm 11, 4. The Lord is in His holy temple... The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids behold, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Since God is a holy God and a righteous God, He hates those who are wicked, who love violence. And violence does not necessarily mean violence in a physical violence sense. It includes that. But violence to what? Violence to His law by committing sin and destroying souls. Because if we are violent towards souls, not with a sword, not with a knife, not with any weapon, but with falsehoods, we are violent towards souls, God hates us. This is a New Testament doctrine also. <clears throat> the, a denial of the universal love of God is also a New Testament doctrine. It is on the lips of Christ himself. Matthew 11. Matthew 11. Matthew 11, 
25 to 27. Matthew eleven twenty-five. 25. <clears throat> After the Lord denounced the cities where most of his miracles occurred because they did not believe. <coughs> they did not believe. They refused to repent. It was their fault. But look at and notice how Christ approaches the subject. Verse 25. At that time, Jesus answered and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you hid these things from the wise and intelligent and revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for thus it was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. He praises God that those cities did not believe. He praises God that those cities did not repent. He praises God also because He, the Son of God, has all authority, all things. And it is the Son of God's will to reveal the Father to certain people or not to reveal the Father to certain people. If the Son of God is withholding the true revelation of God the Father from some people, just as he did in verses 20 to 24 to the inhabitants of Chorazin, Capernaum, and Bethsaida, is that not withholding the love of God from those people? It's not showing the love of God to them. It's a restricted revelation, manifestation, and application of the love of God And it's not to be criticized, it's not to be maligned, it's to be praised. Because Jesus himself praises the Father for it, in verse 25. Next we go to Matthew 23, also on the lips of Jesus. And why do we need to understand that these are on the lips of Jesus? Because today we have a certain phrase, the love of Jesus. The love of Jesus. They like to say the love of Jesus means this or that. The love of Jesus. Well, let's see how restricted this love is. Matthew 23, 29 to 36. 23, 29. In his denunciation now of the Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Consequently, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things shall come upon this 
generation. If the love of Jesus is a universal love, why is it that Jesus called the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites? Why is it, in verse 29, that he pronounces a woe against them? If he is so loving universally, why was he not loving towards the scribes and Pharisees? Why did he call them hypocrites? Why did he compare them to the murderous ancestors who shed the blood of the righteous true prophets? His own contemporaries are compared to the ancestors of the contemporaries who murdered the righteous prophets of old. And after accusing them of being their spiritual murderous descendants, he says in verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. He doesn't say, stop doing this. I plead with you. I beg you. I'm on my knees. I'm praying to God for you that you might repent. Those would be the way false love is practiced today. But here Jesus is telling them, he's commanding them. It's an imperative, an an imperative verb. Fill up then. Fill up. He's saying, continue. Fill up the measure of the guilt of your fathers. He's telling them, keep on sinning. That's unloving, according to today's estimation of the way Jesus was. And 33, he calls them names. You serpents. It's not good to be called a serpent, to be called a snake, right? We say of a deceiver, a conniving man, that he is a snake in the grass. He's calling them snakes. You serpents. And also poisonous ones. You brood of vipers. You brood of vipers. Your venom leads to hell. And in fact, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? There's no escape for you. He's taunting them. This is sarcasm, satire, taunting, however you want to say it, that they are destined for hell. There's no escape for them. And he's telling them before it happens, how are you going to escape? There's no escape for you. And he's adding to their sins. In 34 to 36, he's adding to their sins because he himself, he doesn't say God the Father in this passage, he says, I am sending you, verse 34. I, I, Jesus, am sending you, prophets, wise men, and scribes. He means the redeemed prophets, redeemed wise men, redeemed scribes. I'm going to send them to you because they will be converted And when they are converted, they're going to preach to you. And what are you going to do to them? Are you going to receive them? My best friend? My longtime friend? My long-term colleague? My buddy? My pal? The one I knew for 10, 20, 30 years? My teacher who taught me? My disciple who was with me all these years? This is what he's saying. He's saying, these same men, are. some of them are going to be converted, go back to their colleagues, go back to their classmates, go back to their friends and preach to them. And what are their friends going to do who are now their enemies? They are going to scourge. They're going to persecute. They will kill 
and crucify them. The old friends will show themselves to be new enemies. And when they do it, and Jesus is sending the righteous for that to happen to the righteous, the filling up of the measure of the guilt of their fathers is happening, and they will be judged for it. Does this sound like the universal love of Christ? No, it does not. This sounds like the judgment of Christ, the righteous judgment of the holy child Jesus. If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Maranatha. 1 Corinthians 16, 22. A curse on anyone who does not love the Lord. That's not the universal love of God. Titus 1.16. Titus 1.16. They profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. These professors of the Christian religion, those who claim Christ, they claim to know God. But actually, the way they live, their deeds, deny God. And who are they? How does God perceive them? How does God esteem them? What does God think of them? They are detestable. What's detestable? Another term for hate. Hated by God. They are detestable in the sight of God. They are disobedient in the sight of God because they don't obey Him. And they are worthless for any good deed. Yes, the Bible, the New Testament, calls people worthless in the age of self-esteem. There are worthless people hated by God. Those who claim to know God but don't really know Him. Titus 1, 16. There is no doctrine of the universal love of God. Jesus does not love everybody. That is false. It is untrue. It leads to hell. Also under the love of God is the second, the eternal love of God. People think, commonly speaking, that God loves everybody eternally. Yes, eternally. Everybody's going to get to heaven, even Stalin, Lenin, Hitler. They will all get to heaven. Everybody will get to heaven. Yes, these universalists will even teach, often quietly, that the demons and the devil will get to heaven. The demons and the devil himself will all get to heaven. Everybody is going to get to heaven because God's love is eternal for everyone, so everyone wins. Love wins, they say, as one false pastor wrote. Rob Bell in a book called Love Wins. God's love is eternal for everybody. Is that true? Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, 
21 to 23. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It's not enough to call Jesus Lord because many say it vainly. They say it emptily. They say it not truly believing it. They know the word. It's an easy word to say. And it's common for people to say it. So many people will say, Jesus is Lord. They will pray to him, Lord, help me. But not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then on the day of judgment, when he says that day, that day is the day of judgment when we all stand before the Lord Jesus. They're going to claim to know him. But what will Jesus say? It is important to know God and to know him through Christ. But more important is verse 23. Does God know you? Verse 23. And then I, who's the I? Christ. I will declare to them, I, loving Christ, the love of Jesus, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Jesus will tell them, I never knew you. You claim to know me throughout your life, but I never knew you. And I know so, and it's true, because you practice lawlessness. Lawlessness, antinomianism. Even the Pharisees were lawless, according to Matthew 23, 28. They were not law keepers. They were law keepers of human laws, but not law keepers of God's law. And if you don't keep God's law, you are lawless, licentious, antinomian. Another phrase, depart from me. Depart. Well, if the love of Jesus is eternal, why is he saying, depart, go away from me? Where are they going? Where are they going? Matthew 25, 41. Matthew 25, 41 and 46. Matthew 25, 41 and 46 explain where they are going when he says depart. 25, 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This departure is for the accursed ones, those standing on his left, the goats on the day of judgment. Goats are also mixing and mingling with sheep. They do that often. 
But he's going to separate them. And the goats are going to be accursed. And when they do depart, where do they go? They go to the eternal fire. The eternal fire, which will be the eternal habitation of the devil and his angels. And who else? All of the accursed ones. That means the love of God, the love of Jesus is not eternal for them. They are receiving justice. 2546. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Eternal punishment, they go away, they depart. Eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Both destinations are eternal. The righteous receive eternally the love of God. The wicked, the accursed ones, the goats, all of the men on the left receive his eternal justice. There's eternal justice for the wicked in the lake of fire, hell, but eternal love only for the righteous in Christ. Second Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, against our enemies, against the enemies of the church, the true church, this is what Jesus will do. Jesus will do this when he returns, eternally. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. Verse 9, And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. Eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord here is the Lord Jesus, according to verse 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8, it is the Lord Jesus who returns, (coughs) who inflicts with flaming fire his animosity, his hatred, his justice, eternal justice against those who would deign to be against the church. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2 Thessalonians 2, 8 to 12, more on this eternal destruction. Not eternal love, but destruction. 2 Thessalonians 2, 8, And then that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth, and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Those who did not believe the truth, those who did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved, 
Those who took pleasure in wickedness, they are the ones who will not be saved eternally. Rather, they all will be judged. Like it described in chapter 1 of Second Thessalonians. We may also then scratch the false doctrine of the eternal love of Jesus. It's not true. A third aspect or a third falsehood in relation to the love of God is people think the love of God is unconditional. Unconditional. Automatic. Everybody is cute and cuddly from birth to death in the spiritual sense. Everybody is adorable and huggable by God forever. There's no conditions he he places on them. Not true. Not true at all. Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, verse 4. Mark 1, 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. What was necessary for forgiveness of sins? Repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There is a condition. Repentance. Another one. One fifteen. One fourteen and 15 adds another condition. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. <coughs> the gospel John preached, John the Baptist, is the same gospel Jesus preached. Verse 14 says he's preaching the gospel of God. Jesus is preaching the gospel of God before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. One gospel throughout all time, and Jesus' gospel is the same as John's gospel. They are in harmony, they are in unity, no contradiction, no difference. And so, to believe it, or to benefit from it, what does he say? Verse 15, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Two conditions. Repent and believe in the gospel. We must repent, turn away from sin, and we must believe, believe that Jesus died and rose again for our sins. Repent and believe. No repentance, no forgiveness. No belief, then no reckoning righteous by the righteousness of Christ. Luke 9, Luke 9, 23. If any man, and he was saying to them all, saying to them all, not just to a minority, but to all. In Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Is this not a sentence of conditions? And actually, 
Grammatically, it's known as a conditional sentence. Because the word if is there. If. He's saying to them all. What is he saying? If anyone wishes to come after me. Any of you have that desire? If that is the case, then you must meet these three conditions. (coughs) The then clause is suppressed or unexpressed. But if we were to put then there, if then, if anyone wishes to come after me, then let him, what must he do then? Then let him deny himself. That's the condition. Take up his cross. That's a condition. Not only take up your cross, be willing to die for me, but he says do it daily. Take up his cross daily and follow me. Follow me in keeping my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 15. These are conditions, are they not? Luke 9, 57. Luke 9, 57 to 62. Luke 9, 57. These words may cut against the grain. These words may grate you. These words may be like fingernails on a blackboard to you, to your flesh, to our flesh. Notice what he says. What conditions he lays on the disciples. And the disciples are these men who are following him and claiming to follow him, they're professing to know God. He's telling them this. Luke 9, 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go, proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. The one man he ought to be willing to follow Christ wherever Christ goes or leads him. The second one, on the pretext of having to deal with an emergency, an urgency, a necessity of burying his father, Jesus knows it's an excuse because after he buries his father, he's going to also bury his faith and not follow Christ. So Christ calls him on it and says, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And the third one says in verses 61 and 62, the third one says, I will follow you. Yes, give me some time. Give me some leeway. Let me take a breath. Let me at least have the common decency, the common courtesy, familial love, to go home and say goodbye to those at at my home. Are you going to be that tough and rough with me, Jesus, that I can't go home and say goodbye to those at home? 
And Jesus says to him, he knows it's an excuse. He says, no one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Are these not conditions? And these conditions also are true after the day of Pentecost. Yes, for the Darbyists who might object to the dispensationalists who might object and say, repentance for, was for Israel, but the Gentiles are only supposed to believe. Gentiles believe Israel repents. No, that's false. Speaking to Gentiles, the apostle says this, Acts chapter 17, verses 30 to 31. Therefore, having overlooked, Acts 17, 30. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now commanding men that all everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. (coughs) Having furnished proof to all by raising him from the dead. This is to a Gentilic audience, to the Athenians. He's telling them that God commands them to repent. Chapter 20, Acts 20, 21. Solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. To Jews and Greeks, what are they both supposed to do? Repent and believe in the gospel of Christ. Chapter 24, 24, 24. The Apostle Paul is before an official, a Roman official, Felix, along with his wife. And he says this, 24, 24 to 25. But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for, for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will Summon you. What's Paul preaching? 24, faith in Christ. But what does faith in Christ entail? Just believe and you automatically go to heaven? No difference in your life? Verse 25. Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. That's what he preached to him. Nothing that was sugar-coated or candy-coated. Because whatever is candy-coated, the core is cancer. Acts chapter 26, 26, 26-20. The Apostle Paul, his testimony before another Roman official, Agrippa. 26-20. But kept declaring both to those of Damascus first, and also at Jerusalem, and then throughout all the region of Judea, and even to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, 
performing deeds appropriate to repentance. What is he preaching universally? Repentance and repent, turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. That's what should be preached. And Paul, therefore, is consistent in teaching these conditions. These are the things that must take place to receive forgiveness of sins to everyone. And Paul the Apostle cannot be impugned. He cannot be slandered as being a legalist. This is the true love of God. It's a conditional love to have the eternal spiritual benefit. Then fourthly, on the love of God, another mistaken belief. People would not actually say it this way, but practically this is what it is. They believe that the love of God is an indulgent love. God's love is equivalent to indulgence. That is, God behaves toward us like Santa Claus does at Christmas. He might make a list and check who's been naughty or nice, but even the naughty people get good things. They may not get as many things as the nice people, but they get things like Santa Claus. And even the nice people to Santa Claus are not really nice people. It's just in the worldly, carnal, mythological estimation of people that he categorizes some people as nice people. That's an indulgent love. A grandfather's love. Grandfathers. When grandfathers have grandchildren, do they discipline their sons and daughters the way the parents do? No. Not at all. Not typically. It's very unusual to find a grandfather or a grandmother disciplining their grandchildren the way they ought to be disciplined. If it is going to happen, it will usually happen with the parents, not the grandparents. Because the grandparents have a nature of being indulgent. Some, in some ways it's understandable and permitted, but sometimes it goes too far, and when it goes too far, they undermine the parents. And then that, that is crossing the line. They should not undermine the parents. That's an indulgent love. God is not like that. Nowhere does the Bible describe God as a grandfather. It describes him as a father in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 to 18, but not as a grandfather. Also, an indulgent love portrays God like a candy man. A candy man. A candy man. His pockets are full of candy. He's always distributing candy. He loves to see little children, boys and girls alike, in public, in private, his own strangers. He's got a pocket full of candy, a bag full of candy, maybe even a backpack on, <clears throat> on in order to distribute candy because he loves to see the big gleaming smile on the faces of the children. Is God a candy man? Is he indulgent? No. 
Not at all. How do we know? Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, 6.15 to 23. Romans 6.15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Are we permitted to use grace to justify sin? No. People do use grace to justify sin. They say, we're not under law, we're under grace. Taking this out of context, distorting verses 14 and 15. Taking these verses out of context, they say, we're not under the period of the Mosaic law. We are under the period of the grace of Christ. Therefore, leave me alone. God does not expect me to change. Everything is fine between me and God. He loves me just the way I am. He loves me just as I am. Come as you are to God and stay as you are while you worship God. That's what they mean. That's what they say. That's what they practice. But is that biblical according to this passage? No. Either we are slaves of sin which is shameful and leads to death, or we are slaves of God in Christ, and that leads to eternal life. No indulgence there. Second Peter. Second Peter chapter two. Second Peter chapter two verse seventeen. Second Peter two seventeen to twenty two. Describing false teachers and their followers. He says this. False teachers and their followers. Verse 17. These are springs without water. And mists driven by a storm. For whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity... They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape 
from the ones who live in error. (coughs) Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than, having known it, to turn away from the holy commandment delivered to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. The description of the false Christians is in verse 17. It is nothing praiseworthy. It's not good to be a spring without water. It's not good to be a mist driven by a storm. It's not good to be in the black darkness forever. Not good. And then in 18 and 19, he says that they continue to indulge the flesh with its corrupt desires. They are enticing by fleshly desires, by sensuality. God loves you. It's okay. Everybody sins. Nobody is perfect. It's okay. He still loves you. Just admit that you did some wrong and everything will be just fine. And then when you do it again, just admit and you'll be fine. You're going to go to heaven because it doesn't depend on your works. Verse 19. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Freedom. God freed us. He freed us. He gave us liberty. We have the liberty to live as we please. He says, the the apostle says, they promise freedom, but really their freedom is slavery. Slavery to sin. Slavery to corruption. Slavery to the flesh with its corrupt desires. That's what it really is. So, The love of God does not allow us to indulge in sin. And if we indulge in sin, eventually, even if temporarily we are relieved, we will go back, we will resort to our sins and be like the dogs and the hogs described in verse 22. That's not indulgence. That's not the indulgent love of God. It's the opposite. 1 John. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Verses 5 to 10. 1 John 1, 5. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, 1 John 2, 7 to 11. 1 John 2, 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. If God's love has been perfected According to 1 John 2, 5, the love of God has truly been perfected. Perfected in whom? Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. If the love of God is in us, we walk in the light. If we don't have the love of God perfected in us, we will not walk in the light. So, if we are in the light, are we practicing sin according to chapter 1 and in chapter 2, what we just read? If we have the love of God in us, we will not practice sin. We will walk in the light and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So this means there is no indulgence in the love of God. If we have the love of God and practice the love of God, by walking in the light of God, there is no love of sin. God does not want us to indulge in sin. Have we clarified? If we believe in the love of God in its true sense, it will not be universal, but particular towards His elect who truly believe in the gospel. If we believe in the love of God, we understand it is eternal toward his elect, toward the believers who demonstrate it by the way they live. But it will not be eternal toward the wicked, the reprobate, all of the unbelievers. The love of God is conditional, not unconditional. It is conditional in that it requires us to believe in Christ. It requires us to repent of sin. It requires of us to walk with Christ daily. And then indulgence. Does he love us? Yes. He loves us in many ways. But does he love us to the extent that he permits us and even blesses us to indulge in sin? The answer, no. Not at all. He is not a grandfather or great-grandfather 
spoiling his grandchildren. He's not like that at all. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.